0: All right, perfect. Uh, so welcome back to another Seeker Shrimp podcast. This week, we're going to talk about um, a topic that's actually come up a fair bit in the last, probably since the summer, we've had people asking about it, and it's post-activation potentiation, uh, or PAP, as it's commonly known. Basically, we did a video on this on YouTube. If you want to see like a kind of paper review of a scientific paper that looked a small bit into pap um go to our youtube channel so seek a strength on youtube and you'll see that today we're just going to delve into pap a small bit and give people a bit of background around it um and just basically flesh it out
1: so pap is um post activation potentiation so it it kind of i remember like maybe less, less within 10 years ago it kind of started um becoming a thing in the sports science world and it was at a time when sports science was grasping for legitimacy <laughs> it was looking for terms that were scientific in and of themselves you know like intrinsic properties to sports science like making method out of the madness yeah kind of thing, yeah, you know, yeah like making things like scientific rigor not being like well we know if you do a lot of volume and then you'll do less volume and a bit more intensity you'll get better at things kind of but this was this was trying to make something of something, you know, this was trying to make a scientific process of something in training. And it just happens to be basically that it works. So what it is, is basically it's like the increasing the contractile contri- performance of your muscles. Um, after you do based on its recent history It's based in recent history. So now what that means is recent history means within the last five minutes. So basically you do something, and then you go into another exercise and hopefully that new exercise is improved by its recent contractile history which is what you did five minutes beforehand so that might be something like you do weighted sleds sprints and then you go do five minutes rest and then you do normal unweighted sprints and you sprint faster yeah or you do a half squat heavy half squat for like three reps rack the bar wait three or four minutes and then your vertical jump is increased pre-heavy squat
0: yeah and I think, so the reason there's a lot of this, right, is this is this is unbelievably attractive, right? We get somebody, we give them a condition to do prior to doing, like, a vertical jump, and through no training, just through a state of readiness, they're able to improve their vertical jump or their sprint or whatever. It's unbelievably attractive. Like, if you could get somebody in the warm-up room of a weightlifting meet, get them to do some random fucking triple backflip, And then suddenly their snatch goes up by two and a half percent. Unbelievable. You're obviously going to study it and look into it. What. The downfall of this is. Is that. These things don't last forever. So obviously there's like. There's a, a rate limiting factor in the time. So it has to be. Like most studies are looking at two, three, four. And five minute rest periods in between the like. Heavy contractions and your test variable. But you also just can't... Like, you can't do a PAP every time you want to do a sprint. um Or, like, it doesn't really have applications in in real sports, in inverted commas, because I can't get a rugby player to do a five-rep max back squat and then pass him the ball and get him to sprint up the line. Like, it, it's not really that applicable. um And I think that's why you don't see it in... Even in high-level track and field where just it's just discrete events. Like, you don't see... Usain Bolt doing 5 rep max fucking RDLs and then doing his 100 meter sprint, you know, it, it doesn't happen like that. Um, But the data is there. The data is fairly conclusive in, in certain cases and the cases seem to be very much that it's for experienced athletes, it's for athletes who are skilled in plyometric movements which kind of makes sense and it's for athletes who can use high load. So, You're probably talking about double body weight, back squats at least. You're talking about somebody who has multiple years of training. And then you're talking about people who, in the plyometric or the explosive movement, they're going to be skilled at that. So it's probably not for your general population, but there is definitely data out there that says it appears to work.
1: Yeah, so it looks like, and there's been plenty of studies which have done this on numerous different activities, that it does produce a performance in the uh, secondary activity after you do your pre-activation exercise or whatever that may be. So there's probably three different reasons why it works. So there is the like biochemical reason, which is the actin-myosin bridge, is kind of increasing its uh, effic- efficacy. Then there is the kind of greater pooling of neurons. So if you like a pool of neurons, you can re- recruit them better and probably faster when you go do your secondary activity and then probably the last one is psychologically like if you go do your um your half squats your full squats or whatever it is with 85 percent your one rm and then you go to do the jump you'll know you're doing a pre-activation exercise or whatever right so you know you're doing that so the assumption is then when you go to do your what is a vertical jump or whatever you'll feel like you should be jumping higher. Mm. You'll probably give it more stimulus. You know, you'll probably give it a little bit more oomph because you're involved in this process. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, you should really count that in, like, psychological. An increase in performance is an increase in performance, whatever the cause is. The cause doesn't matter for you as long as you're increasing your performance, I think.
0: Yeah. And, like, there's... There's also a plethora of other, you know, like, people... It seems like every new research paper that comes out... So a lot of this stuff is done from, like early 2000s, 2002, 2003 is kind of where a lot of this comes out. The original one, as far as I can see, is like 1941, is when like PAP was a thing, like this kind of enhanced muscle contraction follow or uh, enhanced muscle performance followed by very high force output muscle contractions. Uh, But some of the other reasons are like uh, they talk about so if I, like, the inhibition of the antagonist muscle, so, like, if I'm doing bicep curls, as I contract my bicep, there's inhibitory nerve signals going to my tricep, so my tricep basically gets, like, put to sleep, essentially. So there's, that's kind of referenced as it. There's also referencing of, like, uh, that it's just a follow on from your warm up and that basically people are just more warm and and all the good normal effects we see from a warm up could be just that's that's all that could be happening. Um but it, it does appear as though like those three things Gurf mentioned are the main things. Uh I also don't think it's rocket science or revolutionary to think that getting somebody to contract the muscle incredibly diff or incredibly high so like really really strong contractions and then a few minutes later so they're firing thousands of nerve signals down their central and peripheral nervous system and then that only a few minutes later they're obviously going to be more ready to to fire more nerve signals again so like it is very much a state of like neuromuscular readiness that's brought about through incredibly strong contractions
1: like really want to emphasize just how many studies are done on it and how frequently it works for people so it's done on like swimming sprinting drop jumps before cycling just any number of combinations and people have done studies on it and it is very interesting the fact that it does work you know there's so so many studies like you could go to any kind of legitimate strength and conditioning journal or you know pubmed or something like that and look for post-activation and you'll see a plethora yeah of random physical exercises or specific sports and then some kind of PAP activity or protocol. And then they end up increasing the performance most, more often than not, they do end up with increasing performance, but there's kind of, there's probably like three different things you want to look at uh, in terms of how useful it is for training and like, do you use it? And there's probably a reason we don't see people using it. Like the first of all, right. Is, so we we're guaranteed almost a short term increase in performance. If you follow one of the protocols that was done on someone or whatever study it was that increased, say, their vertical jump or whatever. So we know that you can get maybe like a 3% increase in performance or max vertical jump height. But the problem is, is that a short-term increase in performance or do we know, does it last long run? So if you repeatedly include PAP in your training over a sustained period of time across a, a full training cycle or a full off-season or whatever it may be, and you're trying to increase your vertical jump do you then keep those benefits to that vertical jump? Like, is it a legitimate increase where you, when if you retest it after a month's break or a three-week downtime after a sustained period of PAP activities, like you did like 16 weeks of PAP, and then you went to do your vertical jump, would you then end up with a higher vertical jump or would you return to pre-jump performance? Then you are wondering, is it because I was just doing a certain amount of vertical jumps as well in my training? Is that why increased? So like the... The validity of like, does it work for long-term in training or is it just a novel tool to increase your t- performance in the short term? I don't think it's been really um, kind of solidified yet. And there's the reason for that is because, the reason it might be risky to use it in your training is because you're adding kind of extra fatigue in some ways. So like if you're doing your, like how, how often can you, let's say if you pick the vertical jump and the heavy back squats, right? So even if you do a half back squat and you're doing 5RM at your 85%, there's no way you're going to be able to do a half back squat at 85% for a 5RM for 12 16 weeks in a row for a legitimate training time. Let's even pick 8 weeks for like a power training cycle or something. Like are you going to be able to do that frequency of back squat? And let's say you are. There's no way you're going to be able to do any kind of productive back squat training within 5 or 6 days of that back squat right? So then you're not giving all to your back squat. You're not giving everything to your vertical jump probably. Because how many sets of vertical jumps can you do after doing five reps at your, with your half your f- 5RM back squat? Two sets maybe, three sets maximum if you're proficient at back squats. So how many times can you realistically do this? Then you're looking at something like, you could very often, we see in those PAP studies, you just end up with extra fatigue in terms of, um, of like if you're using it as a warm-up protocol, you're doubling the amount of activities and certainly increasing the intensity of your warm-ups for an increase in like a measurement performance, but are you increasing your actual performance? So if you look at like drop jumps for cycling, you certainly are, but how how often can you do this? You know, how frequently can it be repeated? It's got, it, like Fit said, it's impossible to implement. Not impossible, but you can't do it on game day, realistically. No. You might be able to do, let's say if you pick, say there's ones on drop jumps before cycling, you could probably do some of that. But do you really want to waste um pre-game energy by doing drop jumps? You know, like, do you really want to, Spend your time doing something like that, or would you just be better off on game day, just warm you up with your normal cycling
0: protocol and then going cycling? Yeah, and that's it. And I think for this is one of the the cases whereby the literature will point towards a performance enhancement, and it will point towards like, oh, there, there's probably something here. Uh, but when you actually start looking into it a small bit deeper, like the studies where there was a positive effect, have the experienced athletes, they have athletes who are good athletes. They're used to doing the plyometric movements. The studies where it's just run-of-the-mill people, um, don't seem to work. You know, the studies where it's just like Joe Soap, who's done a year and a half or two years of resistance training, don't get the same results. Uh, and you're just wondering, like, if you're in any of the, like, if you're in any way inexperienced, or if you're not an elite athlete looking for that one or two percent. Firstly, what will 1% or 2% do for an athlete who's only maybe three or four years in training? Like, 1% or 2% is probably a kilo or two kilos onto their snatch. Um, like, that's not a huge thing. Uh, and then it's just, like, if you are the elite athlete, you're probably going to get 1% or 2% from somewhere else and not from PAP. um, Like, the the science behind it, right? So, to throw the terms out there, the three things is, like, phosphorylation of regulatory light chains, which is what Garf is talking about, like your actin and myosin uh, interaction for muscle contraction. They're theorizing that that gets better but it, it's still not, like it's not done in, like this is just theoretical science. As far as I know they haven't done this in a lab where they're actually looking at singular muscle fibers and doing contractions with them. And even if they have done that in a lab, you still don't know what the full effect of that is. Then there's like potentiation of the H reflex response. Um, That's basically about uh, neuromuscular readiness. And then penation angle of the muscle fibers, right? If you want to read any more about these, you can go and read them. Uh, Science for Sport has a six-part course on PAP. So if it is something you want to do, go and look at that by all means. In terms of for you listening to this as an athlete or as a recreational athlete or just somebody who wants to train or maybe somebody who wants to go to the gym today and try this right you can by all means try it what i would say is if you've a method of measuring vertical jump it's probably going to be the easiest one to try um and what i would say is so there's certain things you need to take into account right Somewhere between three and five minutes tends to be where most of the rest intervals lay. So you do your, do your test jump, take a good break, then do your five rep max back squat and then do your retest jump at the end. And the rest in between your back squats and your jump should be somewhere between three and five minutes, right? For higher load sets, so like higher volume sets, so maybe five reps eight reps ten reps you need longer rest time it's very very intuitive then for when the weights are heavier so if it's like 90 percent or above of your rep max uh you need longer rest time so some studies might do like 60 percent of one rep max for 10 reps so like obviously that takes less rest than really high intensity sets uh untrained athletes if you're So if you're untrained, we can probably say less than two or three years of resistance training. You will need a longer rest time, so you're getting up above five minutes. Trained athletes, shorter rest time, so maybe two to three minutes. The last thing I'd say then is, this is slightly counterintuitive. So if you're going to the gym and you're a stronger athlete, right? So this is just in relation to the absolute weight on the barbell. So if I'm an athlete who has a 250 kilo back squat... My rest time can be shorter if you're a weaker athlete. So the absolute weight on the bar is maybe well, whatever, a hundred kilos or less. You need a longer rest time in between, and this comes down to like this is just basically a collation of a lot of uh, of a lot of the recent research that has been done. But it comes down to skill acquisition and how good we are at that certain skill. So stronger athletes can have shorter rest time because they're inherently better at the skill Um so if we take a two examples so first example we take Gurf is going to the gym today to try out pap and see how it works he can test his vertical jump in a crossfit gym if there's wall ball targets there right so he puts a small bit of chalk on the tips of his finger he'll stand shoulder onto the wall so if he's right-handed he'll stand right shoulder against the wall he'll standardize everything so Feet straight underneath the hips, toes pointed straight ahead. He can swing his arms and do a counter-movement jump. He'll jump and touch his hand up as high as possible on the highest point of his jump on the wall. So you'll see the white marks from his fingertips. He might do three jumps in that test series and he might have three to five minutes rest in between each jump. He'll then measure the average of those three jumps or he can do the highest of those three jumps or however he wants to do it. Gurf will then rest. He'll then warm up his back squat. So Garth is somebody who is strong, so the intensity will be very high, which will bring him into the shorter rest group. It's, depending on what intensity he wants to go for, we'll just say he's going to do a three rep max. So Garth will build up to 240 kilos or 250 kilos for a triple. He'll do his three squats. We'll just say he'll do a rest period somewhere between four three, four, five minutes, relatively short, and then he'll repeat his jump test again. Ideally, if he had a jump mat or a more accurate way of testing, he'd just do one vertical jump in each test, um, and it would be a small bit better, but that's it. So he'll build up to like a triple, he'll do it very, very heavy, and he'll have a relatively short rest period. The next person we'll take as an example is like... Billy... Is Billy the person we used to talk about in podcasts earlier? Um, Fuck, what was his name? Um, Timmy. Timmy. So Timmy's been going to CrossFit for two years. He's done some squatting. He has a 120 kilo back squat. Timmy is going to go to the gym. He'll do his three vertical jumps in the same manner, or he might use a jump mat or something along those lines. Then Timmy will build up to something like an 8RM back squat, but he'll do the 8RM back squat maybe at 90 kilos. He'll then take a longer rest interval. So for the sake of this, we'll say he'll take a rest interval somewhere between 6 and 9 minutes, and then he'll do his jumps again. In both of these cases, they'll probably experience PAP, right? They'll experience a percentage increase from their pre-jump to their post-jump, but we would expect Gurf's percentage increase to be notably larger than Timmy's.
1: So, for if you were looking at this in terms of practical, say, for so we have our athletes and they're trying to increase their power training or whatever, listening. But if we were to look at, say, for example, our powerlifters or weightlifters listening to this, uh, for, to be honest, for powerlifting, I don't think there is a hugely practical implication. So, we've seen some of these on like kind of power output and bench press. But I don't think, realistic for your training, I don't think you will get any major benefit from PAP. Um, re- what you couldn't get from just having your strength training and strength training appropriately, doing your normal training sessions and then doing some separate power sessions where you do them, um, where you're doing just whatever, speed strength training. I don't really think there's any major benefit. And to be honest, it comes down to just the hassle of doing the PAP training for powerlifting, I don't think is really going to pay off. It's going to be awkward. You're probably not going to repeat it for lengthy sessions. You know, it, it doesn't seem worth the hassle, you know, the, um, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, I would say for yeah. powerlifting training. I just, w- I probably wouldn't even bother. You can certainly look into it, but I wouldn't really be holding on horses for it. And I don't know, would it really benefit your one arm in the long run? But for weightlifters, I think there is a little place for PAP. Um, I've seen... Is that Russian coach who... He's on Instagram. I've seen him use it with some of his lifters where they have done, like, a snatch pull. The lifter is using straps, so he'll do a heavy snatch pull, like, 10, 20 kilos heavier than what he's going to do a snatch at, and then two people... He's a cheater. He's
0: using straps.
1: Quickly oh whip off the plates and then do a full snatch. I think that it does have some kind of... some kind of validity, but... um. And I definitely think it'd be a useful training tool if you was in the right position. But again, with these these things, you know, once off for novelty is fine. But for long-term performance, you want to be doing these multiple weeks in a row to get a proper benefit. So if you're willing to commit yourself to a five, six-week period where you're doing using this, uh, in reality, what I would probably do is, and if you go by what the actual studies do, is they take a longer rest period. So rather than going straight in, so doing a clean pull, taking off your weight, and then going straight into a clean what i'd probably do and if if you were to go by typical path protocols is you would do a clean pull let's say you you're trying to clean uh 120 right um you would do a clean pull at like 150 strip the weights wait three to five minutes if not longer and then go do your clean the problem with this then is you are literally drawing out your clean session for upwards of um you could be looking half an hour to get any number of meaningful sets so if you want to do like five or six sets like you're wasting a lot of time there if you have the time to do it, I think it'd be an interesting thing to try if you wanted to. And I, I think there might be some benefits. The only caveat to this is make sure if you're doing your clean pull is that you're doing your clean pull with technique appropriate to your clean. So you're not doing a deadlift technique with the 140 and then go back to 120 and then trying to do a clean technique, a vastly different technique than you did with the 140, you know. Um,
0: I think that's the biggest point. you might be able to do this. About the, th- I that? think that's the biggest point about the clean thing. Um, like the amount of times you see people's pulls being vastly different to what their clean looks like. Like, I've seen people doing this in warm-up rooms, but they're not doing it for pap. They're just doing it so they feel great. They'll do, like, a snatch-pull double or snatch-pull triple at their opener or, like, just above the opener to, like, in inverted commas, build confidence. And I... I, It's just... From 30,000 feet, right it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They'll be confident. But if you look at it in any kind of detail, that's not the way to go. You know, you, you don't want to be pre-fatiguing yourself before you go out to hit your opener.
1: And in terms of like, if you're doing it in training with different technique from what you're doing the clean pull beforehand, uh, the issue then is that you're not activating the same neurological pathways or the same muscles that are involved in the clean then. So if you're doing a different kind of clean technique, if you're doing a very upright you know very small movement in your like shoulder angle for example on a clean deadlift or it'd be like a typical deadlift non-clean related and then you go to your clean technique which would have changes in your shoulder angle and knee angle you're probably not going to get the major benefit now you might get the psychological benefit of feeling lighter weight off the ground but if you really want to narrow it down like you want to keep those techniques the exact same the other area then you might want to do it is if you're trouble with jerks so you load up from the rack whatever i don't know you're doing like a 150 jerk from rack you load up like 180 do say two, three dips, proper dips at the most, re rack the bar, unload it, wait a few minutes again, say three, four minutes, and then go again for that jerk. Um I think it's a novel exercise, that might be useful to do something different in training. But I wouldn't um plenty of people have lifted massive weights without using it, so I wouldn't bank on it improving your or massively increasing your performance.
0: No, and I think it is like this is something that can be quite fun to try, right? Like the the exercise you spoke about earlier going to testing your vert jump doing like a triple or a 5RM and then testing your vert jump again and seeing that it has increased that's great right that's a great way to spend an hour on a Saturday morning instead of having to go to your local coffee shop Uh, I think the jerk dip one uh, definitely Garf is probably like one of the the only real applications I can see and the only real application I would see for it would be if you're somebody who's really struggling mentally to get a certain weight overhead, like everybody has those weights, you know. Everybody has a weight that they've cleaned 100 times and they just can't jerk it or they've jerked within five kilos for a double and they can't get the single at that. Then using pat might just be like the kick up the ass they need to go out and do it. Um, but yeah, I, would, I wouldn't see it being like a long-term training tool in any way. Like, the, if you were to use it in
1: powerlifting, what you would probably do is you would do something like a 1RM bench or squat uh, or deadlift. And then you would be doing drop sets at a weight, which is kind of in the the power open fucking um, come as close, come as, like, at, like, 50%, 60% of your 1RM. But then the, valid, like the usefulness of this in training, yeah. then, is it that useful? So, like, are you going to go for your 1RM? Because it needs to be sufficiently heavy that when you go... Back to your kind of power sets, if you're doing your speed training or whatever you're doing, or your drop off sets, um, y- you need to be going sufficiently heavy. And how often in your powerlifting training are you going to be able to go sufficiently heavy? Like, how close are you going to get to your one RM? Like, are you going to be able to do that for five, six weeks in a row? Uh, almost certainly not. And then, then you need to be in a position where you are able to measure, you know, your power output and measure maybe you can get to like 80% of your 1RM but you've no idea if that will work because you've no idea you've no way of measuring realistically like you're not going to be able to set up a consistent environment where you can measure is your power output on your drop sets better you know or is that 1RM adequate enough so it kind of loses its practicality very fast and when we know there's simpler and more efficient ways of doing things it probably isn't the most um, useful now if you're obviously in a situation for some reason you're in a private powerlifting club or something like that maybe it would be cool to, u- to use that and maybe you'll discover it works very well for your training and if you enjoy it and it does work well then power ahead with it but I'd say for most people it again like it isn't really worth the uh, the implication or adequate into your training probably I would say.
0: Yeah absolutely. Do you have anything else to add on that?
1: I don't think so. Um, we,
0: we're going to do one later on this week or early next week on blood flow restriction and it's use in hypertrophy and accessory movements because um, I think a lot of you might be interested in it and I think when you hear kind of some of the applications for it, um, you'll be even more interested in it. Like, I think PAP is something pe- more people will have heard of, uh, but it's probably less applicable than a lot of people think, whereas blood flow restriction is is probably the opposite of that. Uh, as always, if there's topics you want to hear us speaking about, let us know, so pop us DM, uh, put a comment wherever, uh, and... Thanks for listening.
1: Uh, If you're on iTunes, um, could you leave us a review, please? Um, And if you're on Spotify, a follow would be nice. I don't think I think they're the main two ways of uh, not pushing the podcast, but
0: enhancing its performance,
1: improving the podcast.
0: (laughs) And for fuck's sake, don't leave us a four star review. Yeah, who who does that?
1: Yeah. Four and a half average, I think,
0: on uh, iTunes because alone. some little vegan bastard gave us a one-star review after we reviewed that the game changers.
1: It, I know that's crippling, crippling. What Bastards.
0: that would like, leave it go, like, just because yeah, your religious fucking documentary was wrong. Uh, oh god, he'll give us another rating now.
1: I mean, hopefully he doesn't listen. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, thanks for listening, it's been emotional.